of the ways that I think it, thought it, it would be interesting to start is to talk about a couple of personal cases that I've been involved with. So I, I work in newborn intensive care. Um, and some, some years ago, when I was just starting my training in newborn intensive care, um, I was asked, uh, together with some of the consultants that I was working with, uh, to go and see a couple who just presented to the emergency department. Uh, the woman was in premature labour. This is a woman who, who, was uh, who was in the middle stages of pregnancy. She was 22 weeks pregnant with twins uh, uh, and was going to deliver pretty Im imminently. 22 weeks is uh, more than 17 weeks early. It's beyond the realms of uh, where doctors would normally offer resuscitation in most parts of the world, certainly in Australia at the time, it was unheard of to resuscitate babies as early as this. There were two of them, which substantially increases the risks. The mother hadn't had medicines to improve the baby's chances. She was also a heroin addict, um, as was her partner, who was also missing a very large part of his skull from a major head injury that he had had. So, uh, and they were completely chaotic. And they were demanding that, uh, that the doctors resuscitate their babies. Uh, uh, and we were having this discussion uh, all, all of the clinicians felt that this was an exceptionally bad idea to embark upon resuscitation. Anyway, I arrived the next morning and found these two babies in our intensive care unit. And I was furious with my colleagues, my superiors, for caving into these demands from these patients. I thought this was outrageous that we had done something so obviously unethical. I'm going to come back to that case. The second case is uh, another, more recently where I was asked to counsel a couple uh, who were pregnant with a, a baby who had a, very, a fetus with a very serious congenital heart disease. This, this couple were from a rural area. They had uh, a, a couple of children already. Um, uh, and because of delays in referral, they had been referred across to the tertiary centre beyond the point at which termination of pregnancy was a legally available option. This baby has a, a very serious uh, congenital heart defect um, likely to require major surgery in the newborn period, may or may not survive. Uh, and the obstetricians, unable to offer termination pregnancy because it wasn't a legal option, uh, talked to them about the option of palliative care, keeping the baby comfortable with accepting that the baby would die after birth. And they asked me as the consultant neonatologist to talk to them about this option. But when I looked at what the nature of this uh, baby's condition was and uh, thought more about the baby's chances should they uh, be born. Um, uh, as far as I could tell, this baby had about an 80% chance of survival uh, with uh, one or two fairly major cardiac operations with uh, an, a reasonably normal functional outcome long term. There were some significant uncertainties, could, could all turn out much worse than that, but no reason to think that the child would be significantly disabled or impaired or have uh, major impairments to their quality of life. And actually, as somebody who'd done a PhD in medical ethics and spent three years writing about it, I was pretty clear that this was not in the bounds of normal practice in terms of uh, not providing active treatment. So I felt very uncomfortable uh, offering the option that we would keep this baby comfortable uh, with the expectation the baby would die. I thought that would be morally wrong. I'll come back to that case. What I want to do in this talk is go a little bit away from some of the talks that we've had. So, uh, so I'm not going to talk about sex or reproduction or, or those types of uh, medical issues. Uh, and I'm going to focus in particular in the first part of my talk on non-religious. We've, we've talked a lot about different sorts of religious reasons for objection, but I'm going to focus on some secular reasons 
the reasons that I gave in the two cases were secular reasons for objecting. And I'm going to take the scope away from the outpatient setting and into the intensive care unit. <coughs> what I'm going to do uh, over the course of this talk is to, to focus on conscientious objection in intensive care and distinguish two, two types of, or two examples where I, I, I think the, this uh, potentially occurs. I'm going to then propose this concept uh, that I've invented called conscientious non-objecting objection. I'm going to defend it, define it and defend it, um, relate it to something else that I've talked about with a weird name called dissensus, um, and then, uh, and then uh, try and tackle some of the obvious objections to it. So in terms of conscientious objection, we've heard lots of uh, talk already about how we define, how we draw the boundaries about what we what we're going to call conscientious objection, what we're not. This is the definition that I'm using. Uh, uh, we can get into arguments about whether this is the right definition or not, but I'm going to refer to it in this way. So I'm going to talk about a considered decision by a medical professional to not provide a legally and professionally accepted medical course of action. By professionally accepted, I don't mean this specific context that's professionally accepted. I mean that the professional is providing mechanical ventilation in, head, in intensive care rather than head transplantation. Um, requested by or on behalf of the patient on the basis of a personal, ethical or religious be belief that this action would be morally wrong. So this is going to include the types of uh, pregnancy cases that we've talked about. It's going to include the assisted suicide cases that we've referred to as well. It's not going to include waterboarding um, or medical execution. And at this stage in the conference, I don't think there's any <coughs> need to kind of draw on this type of ammunition for the kind of general sense within the community that conscience is a good thing. But lots of very uh, important, powerful and well-respected people, all of these people I think of as absolute moral paragons in, in lots of ways have said, look, conscience we've got to listen to. Uh, and here am I, I'm going to suggest very shortly uh, the opposite view. So, uh, but, but prime facing it seems like conscience is, is a good thing, we should be promoting it. Um, uh, Mark uh, Wickler is uh, one of the authors of this very recent document about uh, conscientious objection in intensive care. In fact, the, 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 the question of conscientious objection in intensive care is not, as far as I can tell, well discussed in the literature already. Uh, this, this is, uh, having been involved in various policy documents over the years, I think this is a, an outstanding achievement to reach a, a document like this. It's got lots of lots of great strengths. Uh, this document points to the fact that such objections do arise in the intensive care unit and talks in particular about accommodation of such <coughs> objections. Now I'm in fact happy to go along with that and I'm going to focus on a very different question. So the question that I'm interested in is one that, uh, uh, that Hugh pointed to earl earlier, how should Beverly act? Well I'm going to ask how should I, professional, how should other professionals respond to a conflict between what's desired, professionally endorsed, and what the voice of conscience says. Just by way of providing some empirical evidence, because I always like to provide a little bit where it's available, um, intensive care units we might expect to be a hotbed of conscientious uh, uh, objection. They're probably uh, the most stressful locations in a hospital. Uh, the first of these papers, the, the beautifully named Conflicus study, or Conflicus study, 
uh, was a cross-sectional survey of more than 5,000 doctors and nurses in 320 or so ICUs in 24 countries. 72% had experienced conflict in the previous week. Uh, they often were perceived as severe or dangerous, possibly harmful. Uh, the, the other paper, the Peers paper, uh, slightly smaller, but uh, I think only 2,000 doctors and nurses were surveyed about their current experience in the intensive care unit, and on the day that they were surveyed, a quarter of the doctors or nurses were providing treatment to one or more patients that they believed was contrary to their personal and professional beliefs. So, actually, this sort of conflict between conscience and practice is occurring every day in intensive care units. But what results from it? Uh, as I said, there's not much literature on actual objection in intensive care units. Here's one of the few papers. This comes from uh, a nurse researcher, Anita Kaplan, uh, who interviewed a number of nurses about their experience. And, uh, and half of them said, look, in our experience, I, I have had uh, what could be considered a personal conscientious objection. But what they described was a kind of spectrum of action. So in some of them, in a small number of cases, they had kind of actually objected and said, no, I'm not going to do it. But in many cases, they'd sort of engineered so that somebody else would be caring for the patient uh, so that they didn't have to do it. They might have lobbied the professionals concerned to have uh, a different decision. Um, or they might just have said, look, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't agree with this. I don't think this is the right course of action. So they might have just voiced objections. So the, although the, the kind of actual objections might occur there, the sort of tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, conflict between conscience and practice. But what about the tip of the iceberg? What about the actual objection in intensive care? Well, I, I said I'm going to describe two paradigm situations. Uh, these are both real cases. So uh, the first are controversial provision of treatment. This is the case of Samuel Golovchuk. Some of you may have encountered this. this is, we heard a bit about Canada yesterday. Well, in the lead up to the, the, the Canadian law, the, this is a, a, a different context. There was a lot of press related to Samuel Golovchuk. He, he was a, uh, an 84-year-old gentleman from an Orthodox Jewish background uh, who had been in the nursing home uh, for a long period of time with significant morbidity. He then developed pneumonia, was transferred to the intensive care unit uh, where the clinicians involved felt that he uh, was simply not going to survive. He was profoundly neurologically impaired, had, uh, from the point of view of the clinicians, uh, no uh, conscious response to his environment, uh, and they wished to withdraw intensive care. The family were completely opposed to this. Uh, and the dispute raged for nine months, went to the courts, uh, but before the courts could decide, he eventually died. Now, one, among the many reports of this case, uh, a number of them pointed to the fact that three of the intensive care unit doctors um, refused to be involved in the care of Samuel Golubchuk. One of the doctors uh, was publicised as quitting the intensive care unit because they felt this conflicted with their conscience. Um, uh, the opposite type of conscientious objection is controversial non-provision of treatment or controversial palliative care options uh, and one of the most famous cases in this country was the case of Miss B. Uh, so in 2002 Miss B was a uh, very unfortunate middle-aged lady who uh, actually worked I think as a social worker. Uh, she had had a, a nasty complication of uh, uh, I think it was a carotid aneurysm uh, and became quadriplegic and ventilator dependent in the intensive care unit but was 
uh, cognitively completely intact and able to communicate. And she expressed over a long period of time a view that she did not want to continue on a ventilator. Um, she knew that uh, if she was disconnected from the ventilator she would die, but she uh, felt that this was not a life that she wished uh, to live. Um, and the doctors in the intensive care unit repeatedly, over a period of more than a year, refused to disconnect her from the ventilator. They said, we cannot do this in conscience. I went to the, went to the court uh, uh, and the end, uh, the resolution is, as, as the headline points to there, that uh, the court authorised withdrawal of treatment. Okay, so in these types of cases, the cases, my personal cases in these paradigm uh, cases in the, the, the <coughs> newspapers, there's an option for clinicians, there's a fork in the road, they can choose to object or not to object. So what should they do? Well, this is the description of the other path, the opposite to conscientious objection. This is what I'm going to call conscientious non-objection. So this is a considered decision by a medical professional to provide a legally and professionally accepted medical course of action requested by or on behalf of a patient despite a personal belief, uh, ethical or religious belief, that this action would be morally wrong. And there are two kind of nuances that you might like to notice about my description of, of this other path in the wood. Uh, one is that this is a decision despite the conscience of the professional. We might also like the, the kind of nuance that this is a conscientious decision. This is a, a, a decision made in conscience to provide something despite the prickings of conscience. So this is a description of the other path, but I'm going to make a, now a, a, an ethical argument. Whoops, but, uh, my, my PowerPoint's voting against my ethical argument. And the, the professional ought to conscientiously not object. So why is that the case? Why should the professional not object despite their conscience telling them uh, that whatever course of action is, is morally wrong? Well, some of these arguments we've heard this morning, uh, Jeanette and Hugh, uh, clearly and probably better than I have presented some of the reasons why the individual ought not to object. So one of them is on the basis of the autonomy of the patient. Um, the, there's this uh, great uh, case report by Miles Edwards and uh, Susan Toll, which was in the Annals of Internal Medicine a few years ago. Uh, they were ethics consultants who e eventually were involved in a case very similar to Miss B of disconnecting uh, a ventilator-dependent uh, quadriplegic gentleman. Uh, and, and one of the things they described in that was that, w that one of them, uh, I think it was Miles Edwards, had very strong pro-life beliefs, but also accepted that the patient had an absolute right to refuse uh, certain types of medical treatments. Uh, so he, he, they described in this paper the kind of pull in either direction, uh, despite their strong belief in the sanctity of life, the, the value of of respecting the wishes of the patient led uh, this individual uh, intensivist to go against what his conscience was telling him. A separate argument, uh, and not one that, uh, that Hugh or, or Jeanette have, have made this morning, is on what kind of on the grounds of justice. And, and uh, this is something that I've described uh, elsewhere. Uh, which is about variation between clinicians in the decisions that they would make or the options that they would present to patients. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the most uh, striking illustrations of that. 
So this was a study by, uh, I think, Susan Garland, I forget the first name, um, uh, from a few years ago of a single intensive care unit uh, where they had um, periods of service. There were nine intensivists. Uh, and this figure over here shows the time after ICU admission um, until there was a decision made to withdraw life support. And unfortunately, it doesn't come, up, come across very clearly. Let me see if I can get... Uh, what you can see is that there's, there's quite stark different gradients. Each of these lines is a line from one individual intensivist. And they found that there was a 15-fold difference in the rate of making withdrawal decisions between <coughs> the, most, the intensivists most inclined to make decisions and those least inclined. Um, decisions to limit treatment, they wrote, were more strongly related to the identity of the intensivist than to comorbid conditions acute diagnostic category, the source of the ICU admission. This is a phenomenon I've called the roster lottery. Uh, so, in some contexts, with some conditions, whether you get resuscitated, whether you get to the intensive care unit, um, whether you have withdrawal of treatment, whether it's presented as an option, depends on which consultant happens to be on duty that day. You might have the pro-palliative care consultant, or you might have the keep going to s at all costs consultant. It just seems completely arbitrary. Um, and it's that kind of concern about arbitrariness and variation between consultants provides, I think, a prima facie justice reason for not objecting. If your colleagues would do it, it seems, it seems concerning that for this option that's being requested by or on behalf of the patient, uh, that it's not available to them. We might think that, that, that there's a similar argument here related to moral uncertainty, and I won't go over this in great length because um, uh, a couple of the speakers this morning have pointed to moral uncertainty. In fact, I think conscientious objection uh, almost by definition highlights conditions of moral uncertainty. If you've got somebody who's saying, look, this is, everyone else says this is okay, but I don't, uh, and often other people like me don't, we're kind of pointing to the kind of significant normative debate that's at stake here, that there isn't this agreement about what ought to happen. People d take different views. Now, there's a whole philosophical literature on what you should do in the context of moral uncertainty. How do you weigh the sort of, how do you quantify the chance of being right or wrong? Uh, how much weight do you put to, for example, the fetus having moral status or uh, the sanctity of life view being correct even though you don't think that it's correct so how do you do all that well I, i'm not going to try to answer that today i'm going to suggest one plausible answer in the context of moral uncertainty in the context of the professional roles all these variable views is that you go with the the determination of the patient in front of you if if professionals can't decide what the right answer is to these ethical debates but the the, the patient says look well look for me the sanctity of life view isn't, isn't the most important thing, or is the most important thing, well, I think, prima facie, we ought to, start, we ought, the professional ought to endorse the view of the patient. Uh, and finally, although it's not really, uh, it's not really my sort of uh, style of ethical <laughs> argument, I think that there is a virtue-based argument for endorsing conscientious non-objection in intensive care. We heard about the the value of humility, uh, the, and we could think that there's something really importantly virtuous about, and, and certainly thinking about Hughes, uh, 
fantastic talk yesterday about the clinician kind of questioning their their certainty, the source of their beliefs, the possibility that they might be wrong, but there are also virtues of tolerance, virtues of respect for the, the views of the patient. And I think all, all of those, all of these arguments converge. Oops. And, oh, hush, my phone's making silly noises. Okay, this, uh, this argument in favor of conscientious non-objection um, comes together with something that I've written about elsewhere, which is about uh, this thing called dissensus. Now, to explain what dissensus, what I mean by dissensus, I'm going to have to describe the standard view in this area, which is about consensus. So, uh, uh, one reasonably common view amongst professionals in intensive care is that when you're making these decisions about should you stop life support, allow somebody to die, one common view is that, well, what you need is professional consensus. You should gather the professionals around, uh, kind of lay out all the medical facts, and you reach a clinical decision, clinical consensus that it's okay to limit treatment. And then you might go to the family and say, well, we've got a consensus, and uh, we think we should stop intensive care. Um, and I'm not gonna set out all of the arguments uh, here or reiterate them if anyone's interested that they're, they're set out in this paper that I wrote with Julian and Bob Trug a, a few years ago uh, but they draw on very similar um, features that I pointed to already so they draw on moral uncertainty on autonomy of the patient on variability between clinicians uh, and what I proposed in that paper is that rather than consensus we should actually endorse dissensus and I suggested that it would be appropriate to offer the option of palliative care if at least one member of the treating team considers it appropriate and is aware of all relevant facts and persists following discussion. And that they hold this belief not merely in theory, but they, they would say, look, if I were taking care of the patient, I would uh, provide the option of palliative care. Now, now, in fact, this was specifically about withdrawing treatment palliative care, but I think the same arguments can be flipped the other way in terms of continuation of intensive care. So let's see how this uh, works out in the, in the cases that I described at the start. So in the specific case of the fetus with this complex congenital heart disease, um, I had pretty clear intuitions about what was right or what was wrong, uh, but I didn't put my foot down and say, no, I'm not gonna offer this, this is not clinically appropriate, I object to this option. What I went and did was polled all of my colleagues and said, this is a complex case, what do you think? And I tried not to, to uh, give them my own view about it before they gave their views. Um, and I went round all of them, uh, and they all agreed with me except one. One, who I respect and I have a lot of time for, said, well, you know, there's a lot of burden involved in this surgery. This condition's not so different from another really bad heart condition where everybody would normally think it's okay to provide palliative care. If I had seen them, I would have offered them the option of comfort care at delivery. So then I stepped back and said, well, I could object and just make them go and see him instead, but actually I ought to be humble and say, uh, no matter if I've got a PhD in this, it's possible that I've got it wrong. Um, thinking about the fact that they could by chance have seen him instead, I ought if, upon considered reflection, they still want to go ahead with this, um, uh, and perhaps after I've talked with them about the reasons why I think 
they might not want to provide palliative care, uh, that I would support that option. And that, that was uh, what I agree eventually agreed to do. In the, in the context of apologies, I'm just waggling the, the lead here. Um, in the context of the other case, so the, um, let's see if it's going to come back online. In the context of the, the extremely premature infant uh, who was resuscitated by my colleagues, again, when I thought about it in the calm and quiet of the tea room, I had some extremely experienced colleagues who I respected a lot who had themselves agonised about uh, their conscience and they had come to feel that this, this couple, despite their enormous challenges, uh, were responding in, in an understandable way to a, to a terrible situation uh, and were making a request that people attempt to save their babies if possible. Uh, and they were aware of um, cases where such infants had survived. I was not aware at the time. In fact, more recent data suggests that it's nowhere near as rare as, as clinicians uh, uh, might think. Um, and so they, they, uh, I thought on reflection, look, although my conscience initially led me to think this was wrong, um, I should be prepared to, to support this option. So, so I've presented a, an argument in favour of conscientious non-objection, but there are going to be a number of uh, potential counter-arguments. So one of them, uh, I, think, uh, I think Hugh... Uh, pointed out already is the idea of whether it's even coherent to say you should do something that you shouldn't do. So if your conscience says you shouldn't do it, how does it make any sense to say that you ought to do it? And, and I think uh, he, he nicely pointed to uh, the <coughs> difference between different versions of what conscience is saying. If conscience is saying taking everything into account, all things considered, you ought not to do it, then it doesn't make any sense to then say yes, but you ought to do it. Um, but I think, on, at least on views where, where conscience is, is providing one level of input, um, or where conscience is fallible, um, these other arguments in favour of conscientious non-objection might give the individual then an all-things-considered reason to provide the requested uh, service. <coughs> Another concern, and, and, uh, and perhaps Mark might have this concern is that conscientious <coughs> non-objection might uh, might lead to more moral distress. Moral distress is, is something that uh, nursing staff in particular in the intensive care unit describe where uh, they feel uh, enormous psychological tension by being requested to do something that conflicts with their conscience. Uh, and th there's lots of uh, literature on moral distress in the intensive care unit. In, in this paper that I mentioned before, the clinicians described uh, their personal anguish. One of them subsequently sought psychiatric counselling because he was so, felt so bad about this act that he had participated in against his conscience. And so some people might think, look, conscientious non-objection might have really serious consequences for the mental well-being of professionals. Um, and I think that that is, uh, is plausibly the case. Um, and there is, to my knowledge, no empirical literature on whether and promoting people to, to go against their conscience might, um, might support more distress. But clearly we'd have to weigh that up if it, if it existed against the reasons that I've suggested in favour of going along with the patient's wishes. And so it, it might go either way. The, those reasons might be sufficiently weighty to weigh the increase in distress, or they might not. 
But it also seems plausible to me, and I'll come back to it, that uh, helping clinicians, nurses, physicians in intensive care unit, to understand why their conscience is fallible, um, why, despite their personal feelings of qualms, it's important to respect the wishes of the patient, to be aware of the ways in which their views differ from their peers, that those, I think, do some of the work in reducing the stress and distress of professionals in participating in something that, at first glance, they felt uncomfortable doing. I've talked about these secular cases, and some may think that I've just cherry-picked the easy cases, because perhaps the secular objections are more amenable to these other types of, uh, uh, of values, to the autonomy of the patient, to moral uncertainty. Um, However, I, I think that there, there are reasons why the arguments that I presented would apply even if somebody had a religious-based reason against providing treatment. Judge Futile, Charles Camozzi, who's uh, talked here in Oxford, has, has uh, talked quite a bit about a kind of Catholic social justice concern about providing exorbitantly expensive care. And clearly there might be religious uh, objections to provision of palliative care. But the... Uh, that there are a variety of ways of thinking about or parallels to the arguments that I've suggested already. If there, there are differences in practice that track the religions of <coughs> individual intentionists, and I, I haven't presented that data today, but um, the, the variations between physicians in their uh, willingness to provide end-of-life options is related to their, their religion. Again, that seems troublingly arbitrary that you happen to, to arrive in the intensive care unit on the day that you've got the Catholic doctor or the Buddhist doctor or the atheist doctor. Why, why should that make a difference? It seems uh, particularly troubling where the religion of the physician <laughs> differs from uh, the religion of the patient. Um, there's a whole literature about religions themselves and uh, moral uncertainty about epistemic humility uh, in the face of religious diversity. There are obviously all these different religious traditions that take sometimes subtly, sometimes radically different views on this. So um, the views about humility, about uncertainty, are still, at least to some religious individuals, are, are going to uh, potentially provide arguments in favour of non-objection. What about uh, counter-examples? So, that, so I, I, a lot of the... Um, to and fro in this conference already has been kind of creative counterexamples to the examples that have been given. And there were a few that I could think of where, again, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to kind of support conscientious objection in <coughs> some cases, but not in others. And so I was trying to think of cases that might cause problems for my view. So here's, here's one. Um, this is uh, based on the Katrina, uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina uh, in one hospital in New Orleans. Uh, there were, uh, that wasn't evacuated for a number of days. There were a number of very seriously ill patients uh, in that hospital. A couple of clinicians felt that these patients couldn't be evacuated, uh, and it seems that they then embarked upon uh, active euthanasia of those patients uh, in the very last stages of the evacuation. But there were other clinicians who conscientiously objected to that pra practice and decided to refuse. So am I saying that those individuals shouldn't have conscientiously objected. What about this? Uh, in some parts of the world, withdrawal of intensive care is extremely rare or doesn't happen. This, 
I, I found this, this lovely image which uh, it comes from uh, some Japanese intensive care units and J Japan does uh, famously have a, uh, uh, an attitude towards extremely prolonged intensive care uh, and not withdrawing intensive care. So imagine that uh, you've got a patient in the intensive care unit who in, in those countries says, no, I, I, uh, or the family says, no, we, we don't want intensive care to continue. Uh, the, the hospital philosophy, the philosophy of the unit is that intensive care should be continued. Should that clinician object to the policy and go along with the family's wishes? Uh, and what about this case? Uh, uh, so we've got a, an, an intensivist in, in sub-Saharan Africa uh, where the local policy and then perhaps even the national policy is not to admit patients with HIV related diseases to the intensive care unit. Uh, but the, this, this doctor has a personal belief that this is, uh, ex this is discriminatory, it's not justified on medical grounds, it's in fact symptomatic of a much wider uh, discrimination against HIV. So uh, if this individual's conscientiously objecting to this non-admission policy, am I going to, what's my uh, proposal going to have to say about that? Well, I, I'm going to say, and perhaps uh, I'm guilty of uh, jerry-rigging my definition to get out of these, uh, get out of these more difficult cases. Um, but but I, I think that uh, that in all of these cases it doesn't quite fit within what I'm talking about in terms of conscientious non-objection. Uh, so the euthanasia during catastrophe, maybe we, we're sympathetic towards that, or maybe it's not. It's clearly not ethically and professionally accepted in North America to euthanize patients. Uh, we never stop here. You've got a. Uh, it's not. Uh, that the individuals decline to provide something that's requested by the patient. In fact, they are conscientiously providing something requested by the patient that goes against the, the, the accepted practice. Uh, and discriminatory ICU non-admission looks like being, that this is an example of something that's being done on behalf of the patient, because the clinician believes that they would benefit for it, rather than uh, contrary to, um, to, to their wishes. Okay, so just in the last minute, I've presented an argument uh, in favour of conscientious non-objection, but some of you may just be shaking your head and say, well, look, why bother? It's so obvious um, that, uh, at, at least in some circumstances, the individual shouldn't object, shouldn't go along with their conscience. Well, I, I think I'm gonna, there are three reasons in favour of why the argument's worth making. So the first is simply to turn on its head the standard kind of uh, debate about conscience to reclaim the moral high ground from those who are kind of holding on to their conscience and say that those who in conscience are providing services against their personal values, that those are moral exemplars. Those are people that we should be looking up to. Second, as I've already suggested, that uh, rethinking about conscientious non-objection may help us to deal with the far more common situation in intensive care unit where, where clinicians are doing things that, that they are finding morally troubling and if we can support them by explaining why it's good for them to, to provide uh, these treatments despite their personal qualms, uh, that may alleviate moral distress. Um, I've, point, I've talked already about conscientious objection as being the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and one of the reasons, I think, for promoting conscientious non-objection is because of what's underneath the water. All those other cases where clinicians are trying to persuade families against, uh, um, uh, to go along with something contrary to their values, simply not offering 
an option that's contrary to their values. Um, so in, in those other cases that don't rise above the surface as obvious conscientious objection, but where the values of the clinician are, are in conflict with the values of the patient, uh, for those cases, these same arguments, I think, will apply. So to finish, uh, I haven't said anything about accommodation or about uh, allowing conscientious objection. I think that there is a plausible case for allowing conscientious objection within some limits. But I think we should encourage, support, promote conscientious non-objection. This is, this is what we should be teaching our medical students, all of those who answered that survey. Uh, we should be going back to them and saying, you, uh, you're allowed to have these values. It's important, the values to you. But these are the reasons why you shouldn't be refusing to provide legally and professionally uh, endorsed service that uh, is requested by or on behalf of the patient. Uh, I should acknowledge Bob Trug and Julian Savalescu, who I've written with before on related issues but who don't share any of the blame for the mistakes in this paper, and um, the Wellcome Trust who fund me, uh, and uh, if anyone's interested and doesn't have time, feel free to email me or tweet and tell me just where I've gone wrong. Thank you very much.